Well, welcome again. It is glad to be here. I'm so thankful for an opportunity to open God's word with you. With that said, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. I hope you have your Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 29, you go to Psalms and, well, one of the first things I want to share with you this morning is the blessing that it is to know that I'm here because this church is committed to Adam's rest, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful, and I I hope that we are all praying for Adam and his family as they are getting much-needed and well-deserved rest. Jeremiah chapter 29, our main focus this morning is verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 is our main focus. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Jeremiah chapter 29 so that we can hear the context. But I want you also to remember that we as a church are going through the book of Nehemiah. And I'm going to show you how vital this verse and the book of Jeremiah is and how it will inform our understanding of the book of Nehemiah. So with that said, follow along with me, beginning in chapter 1 of verse 29, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring back to this place. For I know the plans, here's our verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In it, we find your promises. We find your truths. And Lord, we see who you are. Your word is truly precious. It is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the very bones and to the depths of our heart. And so God, this morning I pray that it's through that word, your word, and through your prophet, Jeremiah, I pray it's through that that you speak this morning. And God, that you show us, just as we've sung about this morning, Lord, great is thy faithfulness. There's nothing better than you. Lord, these words and these songs echo the truths that we read in your word. And so, Lord, I pray you'd be with us this morning. Lord, I pray your word would stand boldly in our hearts. And God, to that I pray, and it's to you that I ask that you would give me the words to say and guide us as we look in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever put a puzzle together? Over the holidays, it's a big thing to do puzzles. We did a puzzle. We started one at Christmas, still not done. Um, a little challenging sometimes. But one of the things with puzzles is you, you may have put a puzzle together and you, you dump out, you get all the pieces, and you spend days to put it together. And have you ever gotten to the end and you miss one piece? There's just one piece missing. And you can see the picture, but you know that that one piece will complete the picture. Or imagine you open up a box, a puzzle, and you dump it out, shake the box, and imagine there's only one piece in there. How much of the, pic how much of the picture would you see with just one piece? Even if it was the most significant piece of the puzzle, you'd still be missing what was actually going on in the scene. You would miss the picture. It'd be impossible. And the same is true here. This one piece of the puzzle in Jeremiah 29, 11 is a very significant piece, but without the rest of the pieces, it's impossible to fully know what the whole picture is. Jeremiah 29, 11 is often referred to as the most misunderstood verse in the Bible, or perhaps the verse most taken out of context. It's printed on mugs and shirts and bumper stickers. It's printed on walls and motivational pictures. But what does it really mean? It's an incredible verse filled with hope and love and optimism, but it's not exactly the whole picture. 
Last week, Sam began the series on the incredible book of Nehemiah. And originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. About the time of the Reformation, they were separated. But the reason they were originally combined as one book is because together they tell the complete story, at least, of the exile's return to Jerusalem. In Ezra, we see the first two waves back to Jerusalem, led by first Zerubbabel and then Ezra. And in Nehemiah, we see the third wave back to Jerusalem, led by Nehemiah himself. But keep in mind, these waves didn't all happen close together. They didn't all happen around the same time. There was a lot of time that separated the two. So if you'll permit me, turn to your left and go to Ezra and Nehemiah. Because I want to show you some things in Ezra and Nehemiah to help us give the context to Jeremiah. So if you look in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter one, we see what the beginning is. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you look at the different calls of the different waves to go back to Jerusalem, it begins with the naming the king. And in this case, it's Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia who would conquer Babylon. And look what it says. It says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to send the waves of God's people back into the land. Well, then go down a little bit further into Ezra chapter 2, verse 2. What does it say? It begins to talk about Zerubbabel. In verse 2, they came with Zerubbabel. So this was the first wave that Zerubbabel, I want you to keep that name in mind, but he leads the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple that was torn down when the armies of Babylon invaded Jerusalem. And then look back at Ezra 1.1. What does it say? It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Uh, this is important because in Jeremiah chapter 30, 50 years before he prophesied that this would happen. He prophesied that one day you will be brought back into the land. And then 150 years before that, Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 44, 28. He says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So this was planned. This was prophesied. Well, look with me in Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Again, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now keep in mind, this was four kings later from Cyrus in chapter 1 of Ezra. This is four kings later, about 50, about 50 to 60 years later. Ezra is leading the second wave back into Jerusalem. And his focus is to bring about spiritual renewal 
emphasizing the importance of obedience to God's word because that was why they were exiled in the first place because they lost sight, just as Haggai said, they lost sight of God. And then keep going to the right. We'll go into Nehemiah chapter two. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Again, the same king that sent Ezra back about 15 years later. And what was Nehemiah's focus? As we're hearing, Nehemiah's focus was to rebuild the walls. That again, that the Babylonians had torn down. And so Nehemiah's heading back to rebuild the walls. So again, remember, these waves didn't all happen at the same time. And not everybody went back. You got to remember, in between Zerubbabel's return and Ezra's return, this is where we see Esther become queen of Persia. This is where we see Daniel. Daniel was in the first wave with Nebuchadnezzar to be exiled into Babylon. And Ezekiel was in the second wave. And so we begin to see that these, these people are in exile and Daniel never goes back to Jerusalem. And so we see this And it adds so much to our understanding of what is happening in Nehemiah when they're returning to Jerusalem. Now, you might be saying, I thought you were preaching on Jeremiah 29. What, what are we doing in Ezra and Nehemiah? And that's a good question, but what I want you to see is the vital necessity of context. And how when you look at the scriptures and you start making the connections, you start putting the pieces together, you begin to see the greater picture of what's going on. You see, in order to tell the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have to know Jeremiah. I mean, imagine if I opened up a puzzle and I began sorting all the pieces out, I would see the pieces but I wouldn't see the picture until I started putting them together. And that's one of the important things with Scripture. Because it gives us that picture, full picture of God's sovereign love and his faithfulness. Because in Jeremiah, we find out why God's people were in exile to begin with. How did they get there? Why were they there? But we also see God's promise given that one day, 70 years later, God would bring them back. Well, turn back with me to Jeremiah 29. And just so you're aware, we're going to be doing a lot of flipping because where Scripture speaks, I would rather let Scripture speak to you than me. So who is Jeremiah? Well, if we look at Jeremiah chapter one, we see that he was a priest. Jeremiah was a priest, but not only was he a priest, but he was called to be a prophet during the reign of King Josiah. And the calling of Jeremiah to become a prophet is something that is incredible. Look with me in chapter 
1, verse 4 of Jeremiah, I want you to see the dialogue here. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me, and this is what the Lord said to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God decided this before Jeremiah was born. Look at Jeremiah's response in verse six. Then I said, ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Isn't this reminiscent of Moses' response? Jeremiah said, are you sure? Do you have the right guy for the job? And look what God's response. God responds to Jeremiah's response. Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. Why would he say don't be afraid of them, Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah had a gut-wrenching message for God's people. God tells Jeremiah, I will with you, I will deliver you. Then look what the Lord did in verse nine. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That verse and this call informs everything that comes after it in Jeremiah. Because we know where the words came from. That God put the words in Jeremiah's mouth. And here the gut-wrenching ministry of Jeremiah begins. You remember, Jeremiah is called into this time in history where God's people had been living in the promised land for about 600 years as Moses led them out of Egypt and Joshua led them into the promised land and they had set up judges and then the people wanted kings and they had kings and then you had the line of kings and, and the people are living in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had given to them. You remember in Exodus 6, 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so just like Adam and Eve in Genesis, God plants his people into a promised land and gives to them abundantly and graciously and dwells with them, but the people did something. They took their eyes off of God and began chasing after other things. And it didn't get better over time, it got worse. Now, why don't you just see this in Jeremiah chapter two, verse seven. He says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. It realized from the greatest to the least, he's saying. 
and the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Keep going in Jeremiah chapter three, verse 19. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought, I thought you would call me father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel declares the Lord. Keep going to Jeremiah chapter 11, verse six. Look what we read here in verse 11. He says, and the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently even to this day, saying, obey my voice. And what does it say in verse eight? Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So because they went their own way, because they pursued other gods, they broke the covenant with God. Keep going to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse eight. So then, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, you have not obeyed my words. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. Who's he sending for? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. What? What do you mean your servant? He calls Cyrus his shepherd. Now he's calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And I will bring them against this land. Wait a minute, you gave us this land. This was the promised land. And its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. What is happening here? That verse isn't on a mug, right? What, what, is, what are you doing? I, I thought we had an understanding that you would be our God and we would be your people. What's happened? Well, we know what happened. The covenant was broken. You see, in one of the songs that we sung, there's a line in the song that says, Nothing is better than you. Do you understand that that's the whole theme, what's happening? That God is continually telling them, look, you're gonna go after things, you're gonna chase after, you're gonna be lured astray, you're gonna want to go this way, but I'm telling you right now, there is nothing better than me. 
And what do the people do? They keep searching. They keep looking. And all the time, God's saying, this is, there's nothing on the earth that is better and greater and grander and more satisfying and more beautiful than me. You got it. Enjoy it. Know it. Walk in it. Meditate on it. Look in verse 11, chapter 25. This whole land shall be kind of ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, don't forget lamentations, right? Lamentations, which were several laments from what we believe to be by Jeremiah, laments are basically just poems of grief. Now go to the right to Lamentations. Again, it's so important that you don't just hear the word, but you see it. That's why we're flipping. Lamentations chapter two. What does this say in Lamentations? How the Lord in his anger, chapter two, verse one, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. Verse four, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. Verse eight, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. Verse nine, her gates have sunk into the ground. Keep that in mind when you're reading Nehemiah and they're rebuilding the gates. Remember why they had to rebuild them. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. You see, unlike Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they weren't there when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. But Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was there the day Jerusalem was laid waste. He saw it. That's why all throughout Jeremiah and Lamentations, he's weeping. Jeremiah says his, his eyes were filled, filled with tears. His eyes were like fountains because he wept, because he saw it. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, they wept because they loved the city of their ancestors, but they weren't there when it was conquered. Jeremiah 9, I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go away from them. You see, when you read Ezra and Nehemiah's return from exile, it must stir questions in us. 
Why were the people exiled? How did they get there? And the answer is clear that God takes sin very serious. God hates sin. He detests sin, especially when his people deliberately walk in willful disobedience. But there's something that I want you to see in the midst of this judgment and destruction and lament and weeping that we see in Jeremiah and Lamentations. There's something that I want you to see in these two books because nestled in these two books, nestled in all of that anguish are two of the most hopeful Grace-filled verses in all the Bible. What are they? Well, one is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Now keep in mind, this verse is written to those who had been taken into captivity and are in Babylon. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the second verse in Lamentations is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And we've all said this. His mercies, what? Are new every morning. Every morning, his mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness. How can that be? Jeremiah was writing, as I said, to the people in captivity. And here's what I want you to see. When we see the book of Jeremiah and all of this destruction and all the things that's happening, and it is a difficult book to read, one of the things that we must see behind all of this, behind God sending his people, calling for a nation to destroy the holy city, to destroy the temple, to lay its walls waste, and to take its people captive. The thing that you have to see is the thing that Jeremiah shows us in the very beginning of the book in Jeremiah chapter 2. Go there with me. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the first thing that the Lord tells Jeremiah to tell the people is he tells him to remind the people this, that I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. God's saying, I remember the devotion of your youth. And, and some of you that maybe have been a Christian for a while You can remember when you first were saved. Those early days of your walk, maybe, where the word of God was so vibrant and you were were so on fire for the Lord. And then he goes on. He says in verse five, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless And became worthless. In verse 13. 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. You see the heart of God? What broke the heart of God is that his people, that he had shepherded, that he had led, that he had brought out of Egypt, that he had brought through the wilderness and gave them manna from heaven and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And over and over and over, God gives and God serves and God blesses. And yet the people chase after other things. He says, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken the Lord. And so then, after this exile, God brings them back into the promised land. This is what is, this is, what is again, foretold by Jeremiah. But I want to show you one more thing. And this is the best truth of all. Because while it is incredible that God kept his covenant and God brought the people who had broken covenant, he brought them back into the promised land. After the people returned from exile, about 100 years passed, Malachi the prophet, this is where the Old Testament ends, doesn't it? Malachi the prophet prophesies to the people and he foretells the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus, the Messiah. And then there's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence called the intertestamental period where God does not speak to his people. He does not send him any more prophets. And then we pick it up in Matthew and turn with me to Matthew. You all are doing great. Matthew, this is so important to see. Why do we have the genealogy of Matthew? Most of us maybe skip over this. But look in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, why is this important? Because in 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David says that the Messiah will come from the line of David. This was written way, way long time ago. And God's covenant, there will come from a line of David, the Messiah, who will one day bring us into the land and set up a kingdom that will have no end. Why does he make this point at the end of the genealogy? Because it's vital to understand who was in the line of David. Look with me in Matthew verse 1, or verse 12, chapter 1. 
And after the deportation of Babylon, he's given the genealogy of the line of David. Jeconiah was the father of Shetel, and Shetel was the father of Zerubbabel, who led the first wave back into the promised land to do what? To rebuild the temple. And they were building the temple. Zerubbabel was leading the building of the temple. And Haggai, who was sent by the Lord to the people who had returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And what does Haggai tell them? At the very end of Haggai, he says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations. And then he says in verse 23, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetel, same thing Matthew says, declares the Lord, and like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. The signet ring of an emperor was their seal of guarantee. And Zerubbabel was that seal. right in the line of David, whom the Messiah, the promised one, would come. God's promises are from old. And if he fulfilled his promises, his covenant with the people here, how much more so will he fulfill his ultimate covenant to bring us into the land you see, whenever sin occurs, there's, an, there's a wrath of God that comes. What happened here, and Jeremiah prophesied, the people sinned and the wrath of God came and it was poured out on them so that they could be brought back. And that's a shadow of what happened with Christ. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. Christ was exiled so that we, his people, could be brought in. And this is the great story. And I want to close with this last word, with the ending words after that verse of Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. God will keep his promise. God will keep his promise. I want to read to you this last bit from a poem that John Piper wrote on the book of Job. He said, behold the mercy of our king who takes from death its bitter sting and by his blood and often ours brings triumph out of hostile powers and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. When he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart, when God creates a humble hush, and makes Leviathan his brush. It won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. 
in Jeremiah and in Nehemiah and in Ezra and in every book of the Bible, we see the goodness, the faithfulness, and the steadfastness of our Lord. And this is what he wants to show you. He wants to show you his faithfulness. He wants to convince you that there is nothing better than him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are so gracious and kind to us. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir us up, lead us in the way, and lift our eyes to Christ. And may we walk in faith and in the true grace and truth of what we've been given in you. I thank you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.